Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T, to my bed crimers. Hi, how are you? I hope you're doing well. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out the channel. Do me a favor, if after watching the video you find you enjoyed it or you learned something, smash that like button and please consider subscribing. And if you want to support the work I do, please consider a membership. I keep the price really low, $1.99 a month. Hey, that's much less than even one drink from Starbucks. Now, without further ado, let's dig in. Hello, friends. This is T. I'm coming to you from Phoenix, where it's been raining and hailing all day, if you can believe it. I love it because I consider these type of cloudy, cold days introspective days, and I love having the fireplace on. I get to do that maybe once or twice a year. But enough about me. Today I want to talk about the day that Sigfredo Garcia called Harvey Adelson. It's going to take me a little bit to get to that information. I'm going to start with Katie McBanawa's testimony in her first trial, the trial that she shared with her on-again, off-again, unofficial husband, Sigfredo Garcia. The tenth and final day of testimony in the combined trial of Siegfredo Garcia and Katie McBanawa, who were both facing multiple charges in connection to Dan Markell's death, was on Markell's 47th birthday. Of course, he wasn't there to celebrate it. It was Wednesday, October 9th of 2019, and it was a make-or-break day for Katie. That morning, Katie got up early and one of her buddies in jail had woven her hair into an elaborate French braid. The previous evening, Katie had been pondering whether or not to testify in her own defense. Now, Siegfredo had declined that opportunity the day before. Defendants in criminal cases don't often risk testifying on their own behalf. It's usually safer not to take the stand. Sitting in that chair in front of the jury, a defendant then has to navigate through the prosecution's often very difficult questions, some of which the defendant might not have practiced for or seen coming. And it's not like you can say, hey, uh, can I have a moment to confirm? with my lawyer before answering, one wrong answer can mean the difference between the jury voting guilty or not guilty. Jurors will also scrutinize a defendant's behavior more closely, things like facial expressions, body language, tone of voice, whether or not they pause or hesitate before answering. To win at this game, a defendant has to be on their game. And even then, it can make them look guilty. Take Charlie Adelson. When he was on the stand, all of his answers came across as overly researched. He had an answer for everything. And all that preparation actually harmed his case. No one believed a polished word he said. Plus, his extortion theory was pretty much the stuff of a fairy tale, uh, make-believe. It was insane. Back to Katie McBanawa. Nearly all the evidence prosecutors had against her was circumstantial. In fact, the only direct evidence against her came from Luis Rivera. As a former leader in the Latin Kings gang, who took a plea deal to save himself from a lifetime in prison, Rivera wasn't exactly someone the jurors would automatically find credible. 
there were plenty of gaps in the case against Katie, so it wasn't like she had to testify like it was her only hope, Obi Kenobi. And just because a defendant opts to take the stand doesn't mean that the jurors will find that person credible. Jury found Charlie Adelson the opposite of credible, no matter how cool and collected he appeared. In Katie's first trial, the jury had already heard the wire-tapped phone calls between her and Charlie, including the one in which she used the most profane language possible. So they likely were thinking she was not exactly a saint before she got on the stand. But there was the chance that Katie could make a good impression on the jurors, and if so, maybe she'd be found not guilty. At 9 a.m. that Wednesday, the judge asked Katie's lawyer, Tara Kawas, to call her next witness. Kawas shocked the courtroom when she called the then 34-year-old Katie McBanawa to the stand. Katie came in dressed in a black pantsuit with a white blouse. She had some librarian-looking glasses on. The overall vibe she was giving off was of someone rather timid and conservative. She answered politely, using yes ma'am, no ma'am, and she even said bless you whenever someone sneezed. She could have been a nun. Get thee to the nunnery. The problem for Katie was that she came across as not terribly emotional. When she answered questions, she used short responses, yes, no. There was no attempt to woo the jury with charm and warmth. The only thing she offered was her very crisp politeness. Katie's attorney asked the most important question first. instruct you just to speak a little louder. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Um, and okay, could you please introduce yourself to the jury and spell your name for the court reporter? Good morning. My name is Catherine McBonwa, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, McBonwa, M-A-G-B-A-N-U-A. Now, Ms. McBonwa, before you took the stand today, Yes, ma'am. Uh, you and I had a discussion. You understand that you do not have to testify today. Yes, ma'am. Is it completely your decision to take the stand today? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Now, are you feeling? Nervous. Okay. Now, if I'm going too fast, just let me know, and I'll try and slow down, all right? Yes, ma'am. And I'm just going to go, I'm going to take you back right now. Well, let's ask the most important question. Did you have anything to do with the murder of Dan Markell? No, ma'am. Did you get the father of your children, Mr. Garcia, to commit a murder on behalf of Mr. Charlie Adelson? No, ma'am. 
We know now, of course, after Charlie Adelson's trial, that Katie was lying through her teeth throughout both her first and second trial. She believed she could outwit the jurors and the evidence. It was only after being found guilty in a second trial after this first trial ended in a hung jury, and after Charlie Adelson was charged and sent to trial, that Katie finally copped to the truth and admitted being the person who hooked Charlie up with the hitmen. Luis Rivera and Zigfredo Garcia. At this point, I'm sure Katie wanted to sock it to Charlie and all the Adelsons for that matter. After all, had she not met Charlie, Katie probably would not be in prison today. Katie's attorney in this first trial, Tara Kawas, then took Katie through her relationships with Zigfredo and Charlie. Note that Zigfredo was in the courtroom listening to all this as it went down. Katie painted her relationship with Garcia when they were living in Orlando while she attended college as great. She and Zigfredo were never legally married, but they considered themselves husband and wife, mostly because they had two children together. However, their relationship was often turbulent. There were a lot of fights, a lot of breakups, a lot of makeups. Most of the fights were born out of Katie finding evidence on Siegfriedo's phone of him cheating. It's funny that Siegfriedo would be so desperate to get Katie back that he agreed to commit murder while being a serial cheater. Sounds like Siegfriedo has zero self-control. Now, in late 2013, Katie finally kicked Zigfredo out of their house, and she said she was done with him. And it wasn't long after that that she began dating Charlie Adelson. Katie met Charlie while working as a receptionist at a place called Sophie Dental. Charlie, who occasionally worked there as a periodontist, was immediately smitten with Katie and actually grabbed her cell phone and entered his number in her contacts. Pretty bold move, Charlie Adelson. Katie testified that over time, their relationship grew into boyfriend and girlfriend, and they were soon texting and calling each other every day and even telling one another, I love you. What's odd is that despite saying I love you to Charlie and he to her, Katie said in court that the romance was never serious. She and Charlie never talked about moving in together or getting married. And in fact, Katie admitted that she still shacked up with Zigfredo from time to time, even while she was dating Charlie and being intimate with him. Kawas then turned the discussion to July 1st of 2014. On this day, cell phone records showed that at 5.20 p.m., Zigfredo Garcia called and connected to Harvey Adelson's cell phone. Note that this call helped investigators find a connection between Garcia and the Adelsons. Unfortunately, Katie's lawyer failed to ask her if she knew about that call when she was on the stand. And so far, I haven't heard anyone say what this call was about. Katie told the jurors that she had plans to go out on a jet ski with Charlie on that same day, July 1st of 2014. Charlie picked her up in the black Lexus that she would later take possession of. Siegfredo had picked up the kids just before Charlie rolled up in the Lexus. Then as Katie and Charlie were driving away with a jet ski attached to the Lexus, Siegfredo suddenly pulled out in front of them in his blue Volvo. It's funny that he drives a Volvo. This effectively cut off Charlie's path in the road, 
and he had to slam on the brakes. The Volvo was literally sideways in the road, blocking Charlie from driving. Siegfredo jumps out of the car, which, remember, had his two children in it, and he stands in front of the Lexus, screaming at Charlie. Charlie, not wanting to engage with the rough-and-tumble Garcia, backs up and heads in the opposite direction to get away. I have to believe that Siegfredo's call to Harvey on that same day had something to do with this incident and his dislike of Charlie, his anger that Katie was dating Charlie, that the call to Harvey and this threatening road rage incident occurred on the same day makes me believe they are connected. Did Siegfredo want to tattle to Harvey that his son was dating a woman with two kids and an unofficial on-again, off-again cheating husband? Maybe say that Charlie was helping to break up the cozy family? Or did Siegfredo want to ask Harvey something possibly about the planned crime against Dan Markell? There has to be an answer to this. I wish Siegfredo would explain it now. I mean, he's spending his life in prison, so he doesn't really have anything to lose. Back to Katie testifying in her first trial. Katie's lawyer then turned to her work as a bottle girl at Club Fate and Hollywood Live. Now, this job involved Katie taking liquor bottles with sparklers over to the VIP section. Dressing in sexy outfits was an important element of the gig. Katie testified that on a good night, she could make $1,000 to $1,500 in tips and sometimes she worked on more than one night a week. Katie then admitted that she didn't report her cash tips to the IRS. Then her attorney asked Katie about her interactions with Charlie's sister, Wendy Adelson. Katie mentioned a Father's Day party where she and a friend of hers, Wendy, went to the beach near the Adelson's condo. Katie said she has no memory of Wendy ever saying anything about her divorce during this outing. Katie also said she met Harvey and Donna Adelson. Kawas then moved on to the day of the crime. Katie said she had no clue that Zigredo was leaving town, that she didn't realize he'd be driving to Tallahassee. She stated that she couldn't remember what she was doing on the day. The only thing she recalled was Charlie saying something about his ex-brother-in-law being in an accident. Katie said there was no mention of a murder. Kawas then turned to Luis Rivera. Katie testified that she only knew Rivera through Garcia and had never been close to him. Katie said she never spent time with Rivera without Garcia and she didn't have his phone number in her phone. But when Kawas tried to get Katie to agree that the number in her call detail records, starting with a 934 prefix, which was Luis Rivera's number, belonged to someone other than Rivera, Katie just stared at her. Katie even asked Kawas, wasn't that Lewis's number? This was the opposite point that Kawas was trying to make. Katie ended up looking like a fibber when she said she didn't hang out with Rivera or know him very well or talk to him on the phone. One of the things Tara Kawas had to deal with were Katie's phone calls with Lewis Rivera on the day after Markel's murder. Katie said she was probably trying to find Siegfredo when she called Rivera. Kawas said it was clear that Rivera had called Katie first that day. When asked if she was trying to deliver money to Rivera and Garcia that morning, Katie said no. 
Katie also denied delivering stacks of stapled cash from Charlie to Garcia and Rivera. Katie later testified that she was at the pool with her son Ethan around 11 a.m. on July 19, 2014, the day after the crime, but law enforcement had testified that cell phone records showed that Katie's cell phone was in the area of Jessica Rodriguez's apartment at that time. Rodriguez was Luis Rivera's baby mama. I should say is Luis Rivera's baby mama. And Katie's friend, Yindra Mascaro, said that Katie's kids, Ethan and Kaylee, were still with her at that hour. You see, apparently Katie had asked Mascaro to babysit her kids the night before, which would have been the night of the crime. Kawas then moved on to Katie working for the Adelsons. Katie said that she had asked Charlie to help her obtain free health insurance for her kids by placing her on the Adelson Institute's payroll at a minimal salary. This was designed to trick Florida's Department of Children and Families into providing free insurance that Katie wasn't eligible to receive. Sort of sounds like Katie McBanawa would have landed in prison eventually for some of these other crimes she was committing. Katie also admitted during this first trial that she never worked for the Adelson Institute, despite receiving 44 checks from it signed by Donna Adelson from September of 2014 to May of 2016. Katie did, however, say that she worked for Charlie, and when Kawas asked her to describe this working arrangement, Katie sort of stumbled and offered up a bunch of word salad. Here's what Katie said. I was kind of like his assistant. If he needed any help with like off of a patient or something was, or, you know, he needed help with, I would, I would help him with that. And he had like rental places too. So I spoke to him about that too. End quote. I'm sure the jurors were buying that response. No. Katie also told the jury that she also received money occasionally from her mother and from Siegfredo. Even though Siegfredo didn't have a job, he'd turn up from time to time with some cash. As for Katie's breast implants, Katie said she'd been wanting them since high school, and Charlie had referred her to Dr. Roudner. She said she'd been saving for the surgery ever since her first consultation, and by October 18th of 2014, she finally had the $4,000 for the surgery. She paid in cash and got a discount for doing so. Katie told the jury that at this point, she wasn't seeing Charlie very much because he'd been, quote, ghosting her. He wasn't picking up her calls, and Katie said it was Siegfredo who took care of her after the surgery. It sounds like Charlie started ghosting Katie pretty much right after the crime. Although he was giving her the paychecks, he wasn't taking her out to dinner anymore, and he probably wasn't telling her, I love you. I get the feeling Charlie at this point wanted to put as much distance as he could between himself and Katie and Siegfredo. You get the feeling that he felt he had paid them a good sum and now let the cards fall where they may, meaning that if the cops somehow connected Katie and the hitmen to Dan Markell's death, Charlie wanted to minimize whatever relationship he'd had with Katie. The relationship seemed to be over almost as soon as the hitmen got back to Miami. 
Katie then testified that Siegfriedo had a serious motorcycle accident in January of 2015. That would have been with the 1997 Honda Racer motorcycle that he purchased with money from Charlie Adelson. Apparently, Siegfriedo received a legal settlement as well after the accident. Kawas then asked Katie about the Lexus. Katie told the jurors that she began borrowing the car from Charlie after she'd had an accident in April of 2015. That would have been nine months after Dan Markell's death. Katie's Mazda SUV had been totaled. She testified that she'd paid her then ex-boyfriend, Charlie, $1,700 for that car, which was well below the fair market value. She said Charlie gave it to her at a good price as a favor. Charlie also helped Katie get a job at the front desk of his dermatology friend, Dr. Jerome Obed's practice. Obed paid Katie under the table so that she could keep the free public health insurance for her kids. Kawas then turned to Katie's communications with Charlie following the bump in April of 2016. Katie talked about meeting up with Charlie at Dolce Vita, but she said she never saw the piece of paper Charlie described a stranger handing to his mother on the street outside her condo. Although Katie and Charlie spoke for an hour, Katie couldn't recall much of the discussion. How convenient. She was pretty confident, though, that Charlie didn't tell her that the blackmailer had said anything about a murder or Dan Markell. But of course, we know now that Katie was lying about everything that was connected to the crime. Kawas asked Katie why she didn't call the police about this situation. Katie replied, quote, It wasn't my place to call the police, end quote. She also said that the police would have thought she was crazy if she'd gone to them to say that she had a friend whose mom was getting threatened, and the person who was threatening the mom might have said her name, meaning Katie's name. Katie was also asked why she and Siegfredo packed up so many belongings after law enforcement turned up at their townhouse one morning and she didn't answer the door. That day, a friend called Katie and told her that undercover FBI agents were the people who were banging on the front door, and he told her not to answer it. Katie said she and Siegfredo packed up so much clothing, I guess they packed up a whole bunch, only because they were going on a trip to Disney World, and there was a lot of packing to do because they planned to be gone the entire weekend. Hmm. Garcia was arrested after going back to the townhouse to grab more belongings. Now, Katie's attorney wanted Katie to tell the jurors that she'd been offered immunity to flip on Charlie, but that she refused it. However, the judge had ruled that any such questions about immunity were out of bounds based on the rules of evidence. But Tara Kawas tried hard to get Katie to say this despite that ruling. What Katie ended up saying was that, quote, it's up to me to get out of jail, end quote. And then Kawas asked her, okay, and how would you do that? And Katie responded, if I gave up Charlie. Then Kawas asked, do you have information that Charlie Adelson was involved in this? Katie replied, do I have information? I mean, based on everything that we've been seeing, but I don't have personal information, end quote. Clearly, we know now that Katie was lying. I keep saying that Katie was lying. 
When asked if she thought Charlie Adelson was involved in all this, Katie said, yes. It's interesting that at this point she would throw Charlie Adelson a little bit under the bus, but she wasn't willing to throw Siegfredo under it. Of course, she was trying desperately not to throw herself under the bus at the same time. After learning about all of this, I've come to the conclusion that Charlie, Katie, and probably Donna Adelson too now, must have spent or be spending all of their time in jail, awaiting trial, trying to figure out how to lie effectively about their involvement in Dan Markell's murder, allegedly, and how to convince jurors that they are credible people. Maybe that's what all guilty people in jail do with their time. Daydream about the story they're going to have to tell the jury and working out all the kinks in the story. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories.